in a sense, that is what God has called as we continue on talking about the new dynamic in Israel's history. And as we continue in 1 Samuel, that is being under a king as opposed to a judge. In 1 Samuel 12, Samuel is giving up his primary leadership role. He's not giving up his full leadership role. That is still very important, and we're going to see that if we get to it in today's text, that it is incumbent upon King Saul, even though he's become the primary head, that he still has to wait and, and, and um, allow Samuel to have his part in the spiritual aspect of leadership. Saul would be more of um, the king as far as the physical aspects of leadership, but Samuel would still maintain the spiritual aspects of leadership. And so Samuel is in the midst of a speech, calling the people, showing them their wickedness. And he's actually put himself on trial. If you remember, we talked about this last week and said, name something, go ahead. Anything that I've done, bring it up. Now's your time to do it. And Samuel had, and he's literally doing this before the people of Israel. That takes a certain amount of boldness and a certain amount of expectation. Now he's not saying perfect perfection, you know, um, certainly he was not that way, but he was pointing out that he had lived a life that was blameless. I still like the illustration of blameless, that it's like a Teflon pan, nothing can stick to it. And so living your life that way, that it's blameless and Samuel did. Um, and the people, um, exonerated him and, um, were the jury that says, yes, you have passed the test. So then Samuel turns it around and says, now we're going to put the nation of Israel, the people on trial. How well have you done? And he goes through their history and pointing out that even as God is faithful, they have been fickle. And all that God has done, even to this point, um, they were enjoying prosperity. They were enjoying life with God as their king, Samuel as their leader, and as their judge. And they still turned against God and wanted a king. And so they got their king, but God is going to emphasize the fact that they still need to worship him and keep their relationship with him primary. God still needs to be the most important person in their lives. So with that in mind, there's been so many um, application points that I just haven't had time to get into. And I just want to point out some of these before we go any further with Samuel's speech in what we've seen so far. Um, because there, there are, I, I don't want to leave you with a lot of information, but very little practicality in all of this, because there's a lot of practical aspects. I was thinking back to when um, Saul was anointed, and he, the Spirit came upon him, and he was praising and worshiping God with the other prophets, whatever he was saying, and then it seems, yeah, whether it was humility or I think just a lack of full desire to want to serve in this way, realizing what this meant and realizing the, the spiritual um, genuineness and the spiritual caliber that he would have to maintain. Um, I, I think that he was not ready to serve God full, wholeheartedly yet. And so he hid among the baggage. We're not told for sure, but I think that's probably what was going on there. And they found him, and God had chosen him, and so he, he acquiesced and allowed them to make him king. But folks, whether we're young or old, 
let's just determine even through Saul's initial example to determine that we will serve God wholeheartedly. If you're in a struggle right now that Saul was in, as he saw God use him, but yet look at his life and say, I really, really like being a wealthy farmer's son and life's good. And, you know, all I have to do, the worst thing I have to do is chasing donkeys that get lost once in a while. Hey, why would I want to change that? And yet you sense God's calling you to something greater. Decide now that whatever God is going to do, or he's going to call you to, that you're going to submit to it. We tend to ask a lot of why questions in life. And, you know, we all have why questions. Why did God allow this into my life? Why is God doing this in this person's life? And, folks, if, if we wait till we have all the why questions answered before we serve God with our whole hearts, we're never going to serve God with our whole heart. There's, and you might say, well, Pastor Brock, I've got a lot of why questions. Well, I've got a lot of why questions, too, about why God does stuff in my life. And yet, um, I still need to, um, first and foremost, be willing to answer the what question before God answers all the why questions. The what question is, God, what do you want me to do? And whether you answer all the why questions in my life, I'm going to, um, answer, I'm going to ask you the what question. I'm going to obey whatever you would ask me to do. Saul was never struggling with that. And uh, we, we all tend to struggle with that, but let's work through that. Mature Christians have worked through that, right? Determined to serve God wholeheartedly. But there is one thing. I don't want to entirely beat up on Saul here. Initially, though, remember he had some critics. He had some people that were just, you know, those people that just complain just to complain. They don't even have evidence. And it's like, oh, I knew it. Wait a minute. They haven't even done anything yet, you know? And he, Paul, Saul had his critics, and when he had his first successful battle against the Ammonites and everybody's wowed, they remembered those critics, and they said, oh, those critics, let's just do away with them. Let's end their lives. And Saul could have said, yeah, this is probably a good time to get rid of those people. They're, that irritated me that they were so critical, and I hadn't even begun to leave yet. But he did say, no, now's not the time for that. Let's just rejoice in what God has done. So another application here, folks, be willing to show mercy and grace to those that oppose you, to your critics. There will be those in our life that criticize us unworthily and where we don't deserve. Um, there are plenty of other times where people point things out where we, we do need those things pointed out. But we will all have times where we're criticized unjustly is a better word. How are we going to respond? If even King Saul, who we're going to find out today, had his struggles, could respond with mercy and grace to those folks, we should be able to as well. Go the extra mile. Be patient. Realize you don't understand everything that's going on in those people's lives. Pray for them. But say overall, look at what God is doing. Let's not be hindered by a couple um, you know, bad apples or people with bad attitudes. Let, let's, let's move on. Now, at some point, if it's causing a division within the church, things have to be dealt with. But be long-suffering. That's a good word. Be long-suffering. Rejoice in blessings and victories. We found at the end of the victory with the Ammonites and King Saul and the people, they rejoiced and they enjoyed God's blessing. And don't forget when God blesses you and gives you victories to Take time to rejoice. Talk about it. Testify of it. Rejoice. Throw a party, maybe. Um, and um, just take those times because there'll be plenty of times for difficulties as well. 
So enjoy when God gives you the victories too. Samuel shows us that we need to strive to live a blameless life. And ultimately our striving isn't what's going to do it. It's going to be God our humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves to Jesus' work. When we do that, Jesus can enable us to have a wonderful testimony where, again, we're not perfect, but where when the big things in life come and the big stumbling blocks that we have lived in such a way that we're blameless, that those things can't stick to us. And we literally, like Samuel, can say, with God's help, um, name something that I have done that has been a um, divisive thing within the church or that has caused um, others to stumble. And God can help us to live that blameless, consistent life throughout our lives. Don't be just satisfied with five, 10 years of living that way. Strive that we're going to live that way with our whole lives. And uh, like, like Samuel, Samuel is the great example that we are really being called upon in this narrative to measure Saul against and measure the Kings against. Will the Kings match Samuel's testimony. And one day there'll become a king where all the kings after him will be measured by that king's testimony. But that's getting ahead of the game here. God is faithful when we are fickle. Samuel gave that long speech that we finished with last week and pointed out that even when the people were fickle, that God was still faithful and going to be with them. But they needed to repent. They needed to turn back to him and serve him faithfully again but he would always be there to bless them. And Samuel's going to point out here in a minute that he as well as a leader would be there to help them. So aren't we thankful that even when we are fickle, when we don't always love God or serve him wholeheartedly in the way that we're supposed to, he doesn't give up on us. The, the history of Israel tells us that, right? And remember that. And then we're going to see in today's passage as well, don't live your life for the empty things of the world. There's so many things that we can get caught up with in this world that can become more important than the things of God. Let's make sure that we are focused and the things of God are the most important in our lives. So, okay, back to chapter 12, verse 6. And we went, Samuel is now putting the people on trial. He went through that history of the people of Israel and pointed out that after all God's faithfulness, they still asked for a king in place of not just Samuel, but ultimately God. And, they, and then God, in his grace and mercy, did set a king over them, verse 13. So let's review verse 14. Samuel says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, they're renewing the covenant here that they broke by asking for a king. By rejecting God, he's saying, renew the covenant, fear God, serve him, obey him, both your king and you as a nation. Do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. When you do that, and isn't this reminiscent of what the Lord told Joshua all the way back at the beginning when they entered the promised land? If you do that, then both shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continually following the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was. And probably better translated, it will be against you and against your king is another way that could be translated. Um, although maybe he's also implying that as God had to judge their fathers, so he will judge them if he needs to. So 
all of this. And now there's going to come a dramatic moment here where Samuel is going to call on God to do something that's going to stick in their memories and cause them to fear and to repent here. Until this point, uh, what Samuel is saying may just kind of be like, okay, yeah, we know we need to do that. But now it's like the um, exclamation point, the emphasis on all of this. And see, Samuel says, verse 16, Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain, that ye may perceive, or that you sh ye shall see, and see that your wickedness is great, which ye have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking you a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. Kind of like Elijah would eventually call on the Lord for the fire from heaven. The thunder and rain come, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now, why would a rainstorm make these people fearful? Well, it was harvest time. They're looking at their beautiful harvest of grain and wheat. And this is the dry season at this time where you're not expecting a lot of rain and you're praying you don't get a lot. They would pray for rain, but this was not the time they would pray for rain in severe storms that could literally wipe out a crop. Uh, not to rely too much on television shows, but if you've ever seen the early episodes of Little House on the Prairie where Pa finally gets that wonderful crop of wheat. And I remember him walking out and he's, you know, he's has his hand, he's just marveling all oh, and it just looks beautiful. And then that night where the hail comes and the thunderstorm comes and you can see him at the door, he's ready to go out and he finally goes out and just tries, there's nothing he can do. The hail and the, the severe storm uh, ruins the whole crop and he has to go out to work. And I don't remember where that was right now, but um, that, that same sort of, of, I remember seeing on his face though, almost like this horror of I'm losing everything. Imagine that on these people's faces as God sends this thunder and lightning and rain and it brought fear to the people's hearts. Now I think God in his mercy, probably only if he did um, affect the crop, it was only a partial affecting. I think he left them some, but it what made the point that God, um, that they had disobeyed God and they truly again turn back and repent. And this does show a new era where these, at least God's people are willing to repent and turn back to him. Verse 19, and all the people said unto Samuel, pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves, to ask us a king. They repent. They realize we have done wrong. We should not have done this. We should have been satisfied. And we realize now these are people that are fully repentant and fully um, humbled for what the, the evil that they have done. And they recognize their sins as evil. That's exactly the attitude that God wants us to have. When we're brought to that point, when we recognize our sin and we're repentant, it doesn't matter even how grievous that sin is. God can always take that and use that. Folks, no matter the grievous sin that you may have had in your past, when you recognize it as sin and repent of it, don't think that you can't be used anymore by God. In his mercy and grace, he will turn things around and he will still have mercy, still use us. And he will do that for the people. And Samuel said unto the people, here's great grace and mercy, right? Fear not, 
You have done all this wickedness. It's true. You've been a bad bunch of people. You've been wicked. But in the midst of that, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Here's your chance for change. God always gives us a second chance for change throughout our lives. Be grateful for that. Serve the Lord now with your wholeheartedness, like we just talked about. And turn ye not aside, be wholehearted, be focused. For then should ye, for then should ye go after vain or empty things which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain or empty. And that was our emphasis there on being careful. It, it happened during this time. The people were what, what was the most important thing for them about Saul's kingship? That he was handsome and that he was tall. Well, that's pretty shallow. And Sam, and there were other things I'm sure that they were struggling with. And Samuel says, stop pursuing the empty things with your life. Pursue the important things. Pursue, make sure God is first in your lives. You can, you can enjoy the other things in life, but make sure God comes first and make sure that you're being obedient to God. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. God will not forsake his people for his own testimony's sake because he's a loving father and because he had initiated the relationship with his people and he had called them to be his people. All that was on God. He initiated it. Samuel says, he's not going to forsake you because in this, this word, it pleased the Lord. It delighted the Lord. Isn't that amazing? A bunch of sinful people. And Samuel says, but it still, it, it gives the Lord delight for you to be his people. Folks, when we rebel against God as his children, it grieves him. It grieves the Holy Spirit, but he still delights in the fact that we're his children. Don't ask me to explain fully how that works, but I'm sure glad he does. He loves us with an everlasting love, and um, he delights in us. So stay close to him. And then Samuel says, and this shows his own character, that the Lord has continued to do a work in his heart because he has the same character here of the Savior, of, of, of the God of Israel. He says, the same with me. Moreover, as for me, God forbid, that's an interesting, this, this is um, a translation issue. The Hebrew does not use the word God in there. The Hebrew, actually, the word means far be it. Moreover, as for me, far be it in the Hebrew. Well, where do we get God forbid? What does that have to do with it at all? Well, at the time that the King James was being translated, that was a phrase that meant you would say, God forbid. It would basically mean, I would never do that. So um, they were using that phrase that was common in the language at the time. But just an interesting fact here. This is an instance where they add God where the name God wasn't in there because of a language issue. But it really means, moreover, as for me, far be it, I would never do this, that I should sin against the Lord. And what does it say here? Here's our practical principle for prayer tonight, to cease and to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and right way. What a wonderful testimony of a faithful leader, that he will never cease to pray for the people that are under him and that he will continue to be faithful in teaching the right way. You can't ask for better for a leader than that. Samuel says, it will be sin for me if I don't pray for you. So I'm with you. I'm with you till the end. 
and I will pray for you. I will not cease to pray for you. Even the language reminds me of Paul, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul saying, I will not cease to pray for you. Wonderful testimony there. He'd been rejected and he didn't hold it against these people. And he says, I'll faithfully, you can almost sense the love in his heart. I will always want to teach you God's way. That's my, that's my dedication. That's my life, Samuel says here. Now, here's your responsibility. I'll do this for you, but now only fear the Lord and serve him truth or faithfully with all your heart. For consider how great things he hath done for you. He doesn't end, uh, well, he, he will here. Um, but in this part, he points them to serve God faithfully because of all the wonderful things that God has done for them. A very positive thing here. What should, what should ultimately motivate our service? That we're fearful that God is going standing over us with a hammer about ready to knock us out if we get do wrong? Or is it, should it be looking at all the blessings that he's given us? Folks, it ought to be the latter. It ought to be that second one. That ought to motivate our service. All the wonderful things that God has done for us. But here's the warning. If ye shall still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed. Or that really has the idea of being swept away with you and your king. Would there come a time where at least part of the nation would be swept away? Hundreds of years down the road, but the, after the kingdom was split into the northern and southern kingdoms, Israel, not a good king in the bunch, evil against God, was literally, just as Samuel said would one day happen, was swept away. The Assyrians came in and literally decimated the whole nation, spread them around the whole world, and uh, mixed in the Gentiles with the Jewish people. And they were literally exactly what Sam, Samuel said would happen. They were swept away. There was a remnant for Judah, but not for Israel. Sobering indeed. So the people have repented. Saul is now king, and he is the highest well, he's the highest authority as far as the legal authority and things like that. Samuel's the spiritual authority. How's Saul going to live up? And Saul has had um, has had a good start. We'd have to say, wait, for, good for Saul. Is it going to continue? Well, that's what we're going to see here. And we have, yeah, we've got ten more minutes to do that, so that's great. <clears throat> uh, we are in First Samuel chapter thirteen, then, and we come to a verse. That on the look of it, probably maybe you wouldn't catch this, but it is one of the more difficult verse translations in Hebrew in the entire Old Testament. Because in the Hebrew, it does look, it seems that we're missing some numbers or that there's a misunderstanding on what the numbers are supposed to mean. So your versions are going to be all over the place on this because we really don't know the exact um, numbers and what these are supposed to be in the Hebrew. So it says here, Saul reigned, or some of your versions say lived one year, and then some of your versions will say, and then became king. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, so really uh, the, the actual Hebrew, if I remember correctly, Saul reigned, and then it has year, and then it skips ahead, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, and it's like, Wait, where, is there a missing number or something here? And I'm not going to get all that tonight, because if you have an interest, we could talk about it later. It seems, we, we don't know all the details about why the Hebrew is so vague here, 
but it does seem as if the text is focusing on how many years that Saul has reigned in, in the years of his reign rather than his actual age. Some translations will may, might lean toward his age, but it seems here it's talking about how long he had reigned. It's really, it's kind of nebulous here. And you know, I don't want to put too much into this, but I think it can, can kind of, um, the instability in numbers can kind of reflect Saul's instability in his reign, if you want to think of it that way. But anyway, verse 2, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash, and in the hill country, really, of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. Now we're first introduced to Saul's son here. And the rest of the people he sent, or he sent home, every man to his tent. So now we're going to be reminded or introduced to the fact here that the Israelites are still in the midst of a great conflict with the Philistines again. It's severe. And in the midst of this severe conflict, God gives one man a great victory, verse 3. And Jonathan smote, or really defeated, a whole garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. For all Israel heard say that Jonathan, Wait a minute. Saul? Might be a little bit of arrogance there. Now, maybe that's just the fact that, you know, you announced the king overall and the fact that Jonathan was serving under him. I think there might be a little bit of self-serving there personally at this point. And that might indicate to us, uh-oh, that's, that may not be a good sign. But regardless, that, small, that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel also was had an abomination, or this basically has the idea of had become a stench with the Philistines. God gives Jonathan um, this wonderful victory. God is obviously, we see throughout this narrative that God is with Jonathan in the way that he will be with Jonathan's soon-to-be friend. We'll just leave it at that right now. And blesses him. Jonathan has these amazing, effective defeats and victories. And I find it interesting that it's usually Jonathan at this point and not his father that's talked about. And I think that also points to a difference in their relationship with the Lord. It's Jonathan that's getting all the victories, even early on here. So, wonderful victory. Saul announces, we've had this victory. I, and my son, have defeated a garrison. And this... um, does not make the Philistines happy. That word there, they became a stench. It basically says the the Philistines now loathe Saul and Israel. Before they were just their enemies, but now they loathe them. And it's like a whole nother degree of animosity here in the narrative and throughout the rest of the enmity between the Philistines and Israel. It's severe and it just continues to ramp up. So um, what I think from this, and this is just my opinion, that God seems to have allowed the Philistines to strengthen themselves as Israel's enemy. And we're going to see they take every opportunity to rise up in more anger and rage and vehemence than ever. But Saul misses this kind of. He calls the people to battle. And we're going to see here the Philistines rise up. And when we see this description, it's going to be, whoa, 
that's some extraordinary strength and numbers of forces and, and artillery. This is quite remarkable. So um, let's look, let's continue further with that. I lost my spot here, hold on. Um, and the people, that, the, the end of verse four, the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. Listen to this, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people or troops as the sand, which is on the seashore in a multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward with Beth Avon. Here is a huge, extraordinarily huge army. And this, this, has to, this is so huge. I look at this and say, this has to be God working in this. It's almost supernaturally huge um, with, with their strength. And, of course, we know that eventually they're going to find even a better hero than chariots, but that's getting ahead of the story, too. And what are the Israelites' response? Saul's like, let's go! And what do the Israelites do? They see all of this when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait. That's a good old English word for we're in trouble, folks. For the people were hard-pressed or distressed that what? The people hid themselves in caves and in holes, thickets, and in rocks, and in high places, or might have the idea of tombs, and in pits or cisterns, wells. It's like they look out, see this huge, extraordinary amount of, of enemy firepower and, and armies, and everybody just runs to the safest place they can find to hide themselves and barely leave Saul with an army left at all. And some of the Hebrews even leave the promised land altogether. They cross the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead on the east side of the Jordan. And Saul, maybe he's kind of oblivious here. He was yet in Gilgal. And all the people that still were not left following him are trembling. And I, I, I know this isn't a humorous picture, but I almost have this picture of, again, not to use too many, I don't want to use a lot of TV shows in this, but I think of, remember in Andy Griffith where, uh, Andy would go to do something. They were in an old house that some of them considered haunted. And he's looking around and trying to figure out what's going on. He turns around and he's literally got his two deputies, Barney and Gomer at the time. And they're like right up against him, like pressed up against him. I see these armies of Israel, like pressed right up against Saul, like go, go. And we're just going to stay right here really close because we're totally freaked out here. Right. That's the picture. Why is God doing all of this? Well, I think there's a point here that God has allowed the enemy to be so intimidating in order to show the people that even with this king that they had, they still need to rely on their God. God has made the Philistines all of a sudden so strong and so overwhelming that it's obvious to the people. And, and the very fact that they go hiding and disperse and leave Saul kind of with this small band here shows they're still their faith is still in their king. It's not in God. And they're terrified. And God is pointing out, your faith still needs to be with me and your reliance in me, even though you have a king. So Samuel in the, or Saul, in the meantime, verse 8, he tarried. He waited seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from him. The people are still scattering Saul, though, is doing right here to this point. Remember that deal that, he, that Samuel has talked to him about? Saul, before you go to war, you wait for me. 
I'm the spiritual leader. I do the offerings. We, we worship the Lord. We do offerings to him. And then we go to battle. Saul is here waiting on Samuel, obeying God. But Samuel didn't come. But Samuel did say, he told him specifically, give me seven days. And he didn't tell him when within the seven days he was going to be there, right? But in the meantime, I can imagine Saul being a little frustrated, right? He's waiting these days, and he probably thought, seven days? Well, certainly Samuel will come before that. And he's waiting here, and he's seeing people hiding in the wells and in the holes and everything. And it's, oh, I can't believe this. Come on, Samuel. Let's go. We've got a war to win. He's ready to fight, but he's losing his armies. And finally, it gets to the seventh day. And it's indicated here that Saul didn't wait for the full end of the day. Probably the beginning or midday, he probably just throws up his hands and said, oh, he must have been detained. Something must have happened. We got to get a move on here. I barely have an army left. And Saul said, bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. He may have had some of the priests or his servants do it instead of him doing it specifically, but he initiated it. And that was disobedience against God. Even though we can, we can understand his fear and his reasons, very practical, makes a lot of sense, good common sense reasons. It still was disobedience to God. We have to deal with this with our boys every so often. They come up with an excuse for disobedience, and I'm sure that some of your kids are, you know, adults can do this too, right? We come up with an excuse for our disobedience. It makes a lot of sense to us. Practically speaking, it really works. And Lord, or mom and dad, this is why I had to do this. And of course, there are extenuating circumstances where something does happen. But when it's just a matter of convenience, we still have to come back and say, but boys, that's not obedience. You may, it's not, I don't have to obey if I could come up with a really good excuse not to obey. That's Saul's line of reasoning. He's going to come up with some really good ex excuses here <clears throat> for why he doesn't have to obey. And in this case, something that Samuel said very clearly, wait for me. And he gets impatient. Do we ever try to run ahead of God? Be careful about that kind of attitude. Make sure that you are in line with God before you make your decisions. We can get that really mixed up in our minds. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of the offering, the burnt offering, Samuel's timing's impeccable, right? Behold, Samuel came, bam. And Saul went out to meet him that he might salute, or it really has the idea of say hello, greet him. Samuel, hey! It's almost like, honestly, he doesn't realize that there's really anything that's done wrong. Hey, I know you were late. It's okay. We got the offering taken care of. You know, I can see him being kind of nonchalant in here. Is Samuel interested in niceties? No. Here, Samuel's very direct. What have you done? What have you done, Saul? And Saul's got his excuse ready. Well, he's got three aspects, too. He's got an excuse, and he's got people to blame it on. Excuse me here. He's going to blame it on the people. He's going to blame it on the spiritual leadership, on Samuel, and the enemy. And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me. They were leaving me, Samuel. I mean, I couldn't just stand here. And then you were late. You came us not within the days appointed, which wasn't true. It wasn't till the end of the day yet. He could have waited a little longer. 
And the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Look, we had to do something soon or they were going to come together to get us, which was, which was an exaggeration as well. Do you think really that if Saul would have just waited on God's timing, that God would have allowed the Philistines to touch the people of Israel? No. But Saul is thinking practically here, and it's just, it's just like he's clueless about who God really is and God's power. So I had to do something. Therefore, said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto or sought the favor of the Lord. And I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. I forced myself, Samuel. It was all I could do. You know, I didn't want to do it, but I had to. And Samuel, did he buy the line that Saul gave him? He said, no, thou hast done foolishly. You know, there are times where Samuel just gets right to the point, right? You have acted foolishly, Saul. And thou hast not kept, you have disobeyed, directly disobeyed the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. And now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. You would have had a rule, but also the blessing of a dynasty, where your children and your generations would have ruled if you would have just obeyed God. Simply obeyed. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be the captain or prince. Remember, not the king. God is the ultimate king over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. You could have done right. You directly disobeyed Yahweh. You acted foolishly. And so you lose the right to rule, to have an established dynasty. Now, something important here. Saul has not lost the right to rule personally yet so there is that but he will not have the blessing of a dynasty which that will have consequences for his own son jonathan which is tragic because jonathan is an obedient man who loves the lord and yet his father's rebellion will have consequences for himself samuel says here there's another one waiting in the wings he will value israel's god he will value he will have a heart after after God, he will value Yahweh and he will desire to be obedient, Saul, unlike you. You refuse to be obedient, this man will be obedient. He will desire to be obedient. It may seem harsh and rough for Saul to be treated this way, and just one mistake, right? But this was a pretty, this was a big error as far as worshiping God and depending upon God. And what Saul is really showing here is in his heart. He's not depending upon God. And so Samuel says, there will come one that will depend upon God, that will be a man after God's own heart. And you have lost blessing, Saul, because you don't have a heart for God. Severe words, but also a solemn warning for us too. In the midst of all the other applications of these passages, let that ring in our hearts. Let us serve God wholeheartedly. Um, or God can use others. He doesn't have to use us. We're not irreplaceable. Um, but at the same time, be reminded that God loves you, that he delights in his children, and that when you repent of your sin, there's always forgiveness and restoration. Maybe we ought to end with that as a reminder.